Are we are we on? Are we? Are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. Hey there, thank you for tuning in. Today, we bring you the first interview from our pop-up radio show that happened last weekend at Café Boom, a sustainable and community-led bar in the center of Brussels. Have you ever wondered how you make a magazine? Listen to the interview between editor-in-chief Annalyn Uphoff and deputy editor Julie Simon to find out. All right, hello everyone, and thank you for coming by today. I'm Julie, and I'm the deputy editor of Are We Europe? We are a non-profit media foundation that supports the new voices of journalism. Here in Brussels, we have a dedicated team that, among other things, creates a magazine every two months. Uh, you'll be able to find them at the back table. I think we have our latest issue, Down to Earth, and a few of our previous issues as well. The issue just before this uh, collected stories from Ukraine and all of its neighboring countries. Uh, for the one we're launching today, we're looking at land and our relationship to it. So namely, who works the land and who owns the land? Because I think we all know that those aren't necessarily always the same people. So let's just dive right into it. I think there's no reason to wait any longer. Hi, Annalyn. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Happy to have you here. And obviously, we know each other quite well because we work together closely uh, all the time. But can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. So, indeed, we sit together every day. We share a desk. We share a desk, which is a very cute desk. I'm going to try to throw in something that might still be interesting for you. But um, I guess the fundamental things to know about me is that I have a background in journalism, in TV journalism, before I switched to magazine, which is a completely different format. But coming from documentaries, which is a very slow uh, format and method as well, uh, going into a print magazine is a really nice uh, transformation as well. I love the smell of paper. Uh, cameras don't smell, so I like that. I live in Brussels. I am the one Belgian person. In, on the team, and I am proud to say that I've lived in all three language communities in, uh, or all three regions in Belgium. Lovely, thank you. <laughs> I do agree that paper smells really nice. I it think does. that's definitely like getting the magazine when it arrives from the printers, we all just kind of sit around smelling it for a little bit. I think what could be interesting to discuss now is uh, starting more broadly with the theme of the magazine. So every one of our magazines has a different theme. How mm -hmm. do we go about selecting those themes? I'm going to pretend I don't know. Okay, good, good. So I'll pretend you don't know either. <laughs> a lot of our themes are inspired by what we see and hear uh, going on around us. So things that are being picked up in conversation a little bit, um, but that we feel we can bring something to the table, we can add some conversations, we can bring voices and experiences that the reader might not know, uh, people they might never meet, places they might never visit. Those are some of the criteria uh, for us. It, it must be something with a social impact, something that is being talked about in public discourse but isn't mainstream yet. 
And then at the same time, we want to make our contribution to it timeless. So whether you pick up our magazine today or tomorrow or next year or even in five years, uh, we hope that it will still show the trends, the challenges, and also the opportunities that we share as a continent. So having said that, uh, we often get inspired on events like this when people ask us a question. We have membership uh, programs for people who want to receive the magazine and they get a lot of opportunities to give their input as well. And then a lot of times we see or we pick up something and we like, oh, that's interesting. And then we put it in a Google Docs. <laughs> and then we try to really revisit all of these ideas and, and make sure that we pick something that feels good for us and that also brings a lot of diversity in the topics that we that we bring uh, so there's something for for everybody in our audience which is a quite broad audience but we still try to make sure that we add enough new things without making it too inaccessible regardless of the topic that we're covering so we've covered sports and identity we've covered colonialism we've covered uh, queer life we've covered you know now the war in ukraine uh, land and so regardless of how much you might already know about this topic we want this magazine to be there for you and why did you feel it was important to make a magazine on land then so before we used to we used to have these really big and broad topics and so we have had the climate issue um, it's very hard to kind of gather everything that could be said and that you want to tell into one magazine which is in between 88 pages and 148 but that is when we go really overboard and we shouldn't print so much paper so i think what we felt after the climate issue is that there were still so many things left unsaid at the same time in my personal life i i got really interested in land rights and so having those two things come together we saw during the pandemic this this need of a lot of people to reconnect with the land, to reconnect with nature, to reground themselves in a way, which then, of course, also raises questions about accessibility. When is land accessible and to whom is it accessible and to whom is it not accessible and kind of who, who cares for this land? Uh, and do they do it for the broader population? Do they also get uh, to have the same rights or the same uh, yeah, basic access again uh, to it? And so I think that is what inspired us and, and really made us decide to, to go for it right now. In the editor's note of the land issue, uh, you mentioned that if we do a little bit of calculation, which I'm not very good at it personally, um, but if you do the maths, basically, there is one hectare of land per person currently living in Europe. What is the significance of this? And can you tell me a little bit about how we found this out, basically? Yes, indeed. Um, I'm going to mention somebody who's not here, but will be here later. And so um, every week we have the editorial deep dive, which is just a meeting to see how things are going. But we try to really turn that into a conversation about ethics and responsibility of journalism, uh, the power of language, and all these things. So at one moment, we were just talking about whether the land that we have in continental Europe is or should be sufficient to sustain our lifestyles as well. The question arose, like, how big is the surface of Europe? So it's just a very quick Google. And then, okay, if, if this is how big it is, well, how many people live in Europe? 
we were just talking, I think. We, we were continuing with the conversation, and then Eddie, our creative director, all of a sudden was like, wait, if you divide those two, that means there's one hectare per person. And none of us, to be honest, none of us is good in maths. In my, so in the last year of high school, I failed maths with 37% of the grade. I don't know how I ever got my uh, degree. <laughs> Eddie also isn't very good at maths, and you just came out as, an, as a non-mathematics. Uh, so we, we ran the numbers again and again and had to like make sure that we understood what a hectare was and that we did the division correct. But it is indeed a hectare per person that we have of, of just surface area in Europe, in the continent of Europe. The question arose, should this be sufficient? And would it be a solution that every person just has access to one hectare of land? Of course, you cannot simplify things into that extreme, but we thought it was a very interesting way of thinking that in principle, each of us should have access to one hectare of land. Um, and if things were kind of divided up a little bit more equally, would that have a positive influence on our lives or on some people's lives? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I think when I found out the fact, I was also thinking a lot about the right to roam and how a lot of countries in Europe have the right to roam, which is ingrained in law, where you can basically go anywhere on the land, but a lot of countries still don't have this. Uh, one example would be in Northern Ireland, uh, the national parks are free to roam, but that's 0.9% of Ireland's landmass, which is uh, not enough if we think about the way that people should be able to access the land on a daily basis. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about the, the process for making this magazine. So you send out a call for pitches. Mm -hmm. Everyone sends their pitches in. And so once that had happened and you were digging through all the pitches you'd received, were there any pitches that surprised you? Yeah, so maybe, maybe to put it a tiny bit in to context, um, what traditional magazines would do is they pick a topic in a big meeting, they talk about, okay, what are the 10, 12, 20, 30 articles that we want in it? And it'd be like, okay, you do that, you do that, because it was your ID, you didn't have an ID, so I'm giving you an ID, go do report, come back to us. We do it completely differently in which we decide on the topic in Brussels, but again, it's often inspired by conversations that we've had with members, with writers, with photographers. And then we put it out there and we hope that people connect to this topic in the same way that we do. It's a big, big advantage because they bring ideas that we would have never thought about because everybody has different experiences. Everybody has different lives, different backgrounds. It's, it's honestly just a dream to work with that. Sometimes it's a little bit of a disadvantage because you really want a story and nobody's pitching it. You're like, oh, but guys. <laughs> please, come on, this is really cool. But we try to not take too much control of that editorial process because we're here for the new voices of journalism. So we don't feel that we want to position ourselves too much into that process. Having said that, you asked about the pitches that stood out to me. Of course, they're the one in the magazine. But the one from Ibiza, for example, which I think a lot of people know as this party island, you know, very stereotypical, and it does come up in the news quite often. You know, it's lifestyle related, it's real estate related, it's investment related. And I think what I hadn't seen before is how all these topics that we do talk about, the huge amount of Brits going there to party, the, the big resorts that are being built there, how does that affect the identity of people, generations that have lived there 
forever and ever the culture that they had in relationship with the land. So what was that even, that relationship? I had never even thought about it. So that is one that I really like. Um, yes, and then there were some, some topics that lacked, but that's okay, because we're not stopping with our work. We'll, we'll do more magazines and more issues. Absolutely. And one question I had, and I actually don't know the answer to this, is was there an overwhelming amount of climate change pitches? Because I can think with a topic like land and how we relate to the land and, you know, questions of respect for the land and sustainability, I can imagine that there was quite a big chunk of the pitches that were climate change. Yes, yes, uh, quite a bit. And I must say that we almost on principle didn't accept them because we had made a climate issue. We really wanted to dive much deeper here, deeper than what is happening to the environment in general, to, to climate in general, which of course we do feel that needs to be discussed. I guess, I mean, I don't like after we make a magazine to think about the things that maybe we would have wanted to include because then we start feeling like the magazine's missing things, but it's, it's not. It's just that we need to make plenty, plenty more uh, and focus our, our editorial lines a bit differently within the same topics. But what I want to ask you if, is if there are any stories or places you would have liked to hear from that no one pitched. Because we also rely on a contributor base that pitches from all over the continent, but maybe once you're thinking that there might be something interesting in a specific country, but mm -hmm. no one from there has pitched yes. to that specific call. Yeah, I think historically in our organization, I mean, it isn't history because we, we exist for six years now, but because we are an English-based uh, magazine. Of course, we get a lot of pitches from the UK, uh, which we still include in the magazine, by the way. We still love you. And we have made a lot of efforts to include Eastern Europe much more, because even when you look at legacy media, if you look at their international section, Eastern Europe is so underrepresented, as is Southern and Northern Europe as well. When we talk about Scandinavia, we always talk about the Scandinavia utopia, right? Oh, in Finland, they have these little boxes for newborns. Oh, great. You know, they have forest bathing introduced into the educational system. That's awesome. But it's also a very limited lens to looking at uh, the Nordic. And I think in the future, that is is the area that I feel we need to work on even more. We've done a great job including much more Eastern European countries, uh, contributors, ideas and topics. And, and let's not forget about that. And let's now kind of uh, include the Nordics a little bit more. And we did write one of the articles ourselves because we felt that there was a huge gap. Mm. We were making a land issue and there were no pitches about indigenous people in Europe. So it felt really wrong to not include that. So that's what we, yeah, that's what we did ourselves. Yeah, I'm going to jump ahead to that for a second. So you conducted a double interview on the Sami people and their homelands. Could you tell us a little bit about the interview, who you interviewed, uh, and, and something that you found out that you didn't know before? I think the interview lasted for two hours, even though it should have been an hour, but I just got so carried away and was so interested. The Sami people live in the Arctic regions, uh, in the Nordic region of Europe, including Russia. And their homelands, they call it Sapmi, so that doesn't have any borders. It crosses from Sweden to Russia to Norway to Finland. And we talked very much about the link between Finnish politics and their uh, traditional land use and the right to use that land as they th saw fit. 
So one of the things that really stood out, and I, I would love to just really dive into the numbers and the specifics behind that is, if you are a mining company and you want to open a mine in Finland, it's quite easy to get a permit. Uh, of course, there's different stages of permit, but if we just talk about the first stage, which is the exploration stage, right? Which is you reserve a particular piece of land to look if there is any min minerals in there that you want to die for, you want to mine them. And so they will look at your request, but they will never look at how many other mining permits are in that region already. So they do it on an individual permit base, which means that you have no control and there's not even a national overview of how, where all the permits lay. And if that is in SAPMI, you could say that one individual permit would be a little bit easier maybe to fight against, right? But if they're just widespread and, and nobody has an overview and you can reserve huge areas, a hundred square kilometers, more even, and it's just all dotted over the map and there is no official map of this, um, that can have just so disastrous consequences and they only look at the very individual one. Another thing that I really learned there is um, I did a documentary on Native American boarding schools in the US, in Oklahoma, and I did not know that we have the same thing in Finland and Sweden. Uh, so boarding schools or schooling was made mandatory at a certain uh, moment in the history. So everybody needed to go to school, including kids of farmers who might not have access to a school in their region, including Sami children who didn't have access to schools in their region. And so for that, they built boarding schools. And within those boarding schools, it's what they call Finnish assimilation, which was really promoted and, and pushed upon these children who were young and very moldable and away from everything that they knew. And it's, it's just such a forgotten piece of history. There used to be instruments that measured people's skulls and, and bone structures and everything to, to really racialize the knowledge as well of the Sami people. So that's something that we couldn't go into for this article, but it's, it's something that I think is just such an erased part of history, even within Finland, because it was a double interview. Uh, one was a uh, Sami politician, because there's a Sami parliament in Finland, and the other person was a Finnish expert on indigenous rights who is not Sami. So though, having those two perspectives combined really painted both a picture from the Sami perspective and then also from the mainstream majority population. It was Kuka is the name of, uh, of the journalist. She was a bridge between those two. So yeah, interesting. Absolutely. I really, really loved reading the interview. I think, for me, the thing that maybe really put everything into place in terms of long-term thinking was uh, finding out that all the areas of Sami land that had been logged in the 1990s, where all the trees had been removed, have not changed one bit. There has been zero regrowth. Nothing has come back. Uh, and a lot of Sami people are taking care of reindeer, and now they are having to bring in extra feed because there's just not enough plants or trees left to feed the reindeer. So suddenly taking care of reindeer is not the same job and time that it used to be because now you have to kind of artificially bring in things for them to survive because the natural environment has been completely 
destroyed at the behest of uh, profit. And all of a sudden you're completely tied to world economics. Mm -hmm. Something Absolutely. that used to be based off the land, you cannot longer do just by using the land. Uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of what happened with our magazine timeline this year. So this magazine, Down to Earth, was meant to be launched earlier in the year, but it couldn't be due to the war. Because when the war broke out, we sat down and had a conversation. And even though we do more slow journalism, we don't really do breaking news or anything like that, we realized that this was still something that we wanted and needed to talk about. So this issue got pushed a little bit back in our timeline and we made uh, Beyond the Headlines of War, which is our issue on uh, Ukraine and its neighboring countries. I want to know, Annalene, what was it like to edit a magazine that suddenly had a pause in it where you kind of had to drop it and then pick it back up a couple months later? And were there any changes you had to make because of this long pause that we've never really had to do before? Yeah, project management-wise, that's a nightmare. <laughs> Because your attention is all over the place. Uh, you don't really remember where you left things. You want to pick them up. But then just the feeling of ownership and, and of connection is a little bit... You, you really just have to invest a lot back into it. In terms of the stories, I think we made, we made a good call to, to postpone it because we couldn't publish the land issue. In the beginning, we always just say, this is the blah, blah, blah issue. We couldn't publish the land issue when there's a territorial war going on. And nobody knew, is it going to last seven days? Is it going to last seven years? But still, it felt extremely wrong, even though we were looking at the land through a different lens. And so I think in terms of stories, there's, there's only one major change that we needed to do, which is we had a story from Ukraine planned for the land issue. Everything was written, everything was prepared. We just needed to print and kind of fine-tune the last editing bits and pieces and design it. But that story we unfortunately had to cut because within the current reality, what was being talked about, uh, which is actually also mining in Ukraine and, and how people were evicted from homes, pressured into selling their homes, just felt quite different and, and I don't want to say irrelevant because it's still relevant. It happened and it might happen again. If not after the war ends, then maybe in other regions. But we have to look at that story through new eyes and contextualize it in a completely different way. So we're going to use that article for online only. We're still going to tell it, but we're going to add new elements to it. So it feels right at this time to publish. And uh, of all the stories in this issue, uh, which one marked you the most or left something? Well, actually, it's, it's kind of like asking a parent to pick their favorite child, so it's maybe a bit of an unfair question. But if you want to have a quick flip through, I don't know, is it weird? Am I making it awkward? <laughs> no, no, no. I hope not. No, you're not, you're not making it awkward. Um, but I, I think I'm going to make it awkward. Go for it. Oh, no, I... I think I'm going to say something that's not very socially acceptable. What is it? I think our interview, <laughs> which is awkward because it's ours, but just because I did it as well. We, don't, we really try to give as many opportunities as we can to other writers and photographers. But this was one topic that I couldn't let go. I really couldn't let go. So if you're asking me personally what affected me the most, it's this because I know that I will keep working on it as well. If not that, I would say the Annas. Woo. Yeah. 
Diana is sitting at the back of the room with a big smile. You will be hearing more uh, from Diana right after this, but we'll get to that in a second. I'm actually almost personally interested in the answer to this question because I think almost. it's... Almost. Almost. <laughs> Not actually interested. Uh, no, I am very interested in the answer to this question. Uh, what do you hope the reader gets out of this issue of Are We Europe magazine? And then I'm going to broaden the question and say every issue. Every issue. Okay, well, let's, let's start with this issue, I think. I think we're very critical when we talk about land rights in other continents, other than Europe. And uh, I think we, we, of course, look a lot at the post-colonial countries, for example, and we talk about rights there. Uh, we look at the US and the rights of Native Americans there. We look at Latin America and everything, that the war on drugs and also the kind of competition for resources is doing there. But I think we very rarely look at land rights in, in Europe. And I think it's easy to always assume that it's not as bad. I'm not saying that it is. I'm not comparing continents or comparing countries. I just want people to reflect more on it because we do talk about mining when we talk about climate change. We do talk about you know big windmill parks when we talk about real estate. But do we really talk about the rights to the land and do we actually even fight enough for it? So what about generally for Aria oh. Magazine? What do you hope someone who's sitting in a coffee shop and there's a random copy of our magazine mm -hmm. and they sit there for an hour just reading really cover to cover, what would you like them to walk away with? Okay, I think what we always try to do is make sure that by combining stories smartly or creatively, we can make sure that a, a story from a person in Ireland living on the coast of Ireland and seeing their village disappear due to coastal erosion will be as relevant to you as, as the story from Sapmi. Because you combine them in a way that you show this pan-European perspective. We know we don't have literal borders with checkpoints. We don't have to show our passports outside of COVID times. Uh, when, when we travel somewhere, we can work where we want, we can love whoever we want, we can study and live abroad within Europe without any or without much restrictions. And I think we also need to look at stories through that lens. Yeah, kind of uh, broadening your understanding of what life is like as mm. well, just being generally quite curious yeah. about what happens around you and maybe a bit further afield. But now I have a final question for you. And okay. then I will let you, I don't know, have a drink or something. Uh, what is your personal connection to the land around you? What does land mean to you, Annalyn? I am a city kid. I was born in the city. I live in the city. But I cannot live without nature. And I think it's easy to forget that. I think it's easy to get swept into, you know, the nice exhibition here, but then also the, all the work that you still need to do and the families that you need to see and you're on the train all the time. And sure, you use your bike, but it's very much point A to point B um, mode of transport. And I think I, I forget it so much and so often. And I only notice that when I am enjoying the land in the most literal way that I can. So just escaping to the forests or the mountains and really trying to be more in touch with that. But then I know it's a privilege to do that as well. So, so it does feel like a, like a double-edged thing sometimes. Mm. I think that's very understandable. 
Well, thank you, Anlene, for being here today with me. Thank you. We are up next for a conversation. Should we ask if anybody else has questions? Oh, yeah, true. Sorry. Wow, <laughs> bad moderating. Does anybody have any questions? Uh, yeah, so my name's Zoe, and um, yeah, also I work as a journalist, but I'm interested in, I was interested in the land issue, and I was wondering about perhaps a food issue after uh -huh. that, because I feel like food and land are so closely connected, and also... Yeah, the food stories that I've looked, begun to look into some, and they're just, it's very interesting. Yes, yes. Actually, Down to Earth, or the land issue, started as discussion about whether we should make a food issue. And then we pivoted towards land. But food is still very much on our agenda. And I think what we have done with food already last year is we made some recipe cards, melting pot recipes from the diaspora. So it has personal favorite recipes from people and then the story on the back. So people from the diaspora living in Europe and their connection through their roots, through food. Very interesting. <laughs> but let's make, let's make a magazine. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd get a lot of uh, interest. Yeah, thank you. Does anybody else have any questions? Okay, cool. <laughs> then I will on. get that drink. Thank you. Curious to know how the rest of our pop-up radio show went? Stay tuned for our next episode. This one has been produced by sound producers Neja Borkovic and Jada Santana. Support our magazine by buying the latest issue Down to Earth online or buy our customized t-shirts on everpress.com. See ya!